Ken, welcome to Time Team Tea Time. Great pleasure to see you. Um, My pleasure. I have memories of you arriving on a, on a Time Team. Um, and I'm afraid I can't remember which one it is, um, but it was a long time ago. I remember that. And there you were. And I remember you chatting away to Phil. Yes. Um, and I understand Phil, you know, actually sent you a small gift to remind you of the day. <laughs> he did. Well, I sent him a copy of The Pillars of the Earth and he really liked it. Yeah. Uh, as I thought he would, because he loves craftsmen and tools and so on. And he sent me this Stone Age hand axe, which is a flint, uh, which, is, which I cherish. And I've, it's been on my desk ever since. And I, I learned something from it. I hadn't realized how bloody sharp these edges are. But you could easily imagine skinning a rabbit or something with one yeah. of these. It's called a hand axe. And it is. It's an axe. Yeah. It's an extraordinary object. And that's, if that's a Phil original, that's, uh, you've really got something there. He doesn't hand those out willy-nilly. And I think the fact he read the book is a great, you know, was interesting. I think he obviously got the, because the, the first book I came to that you'd written was The Pillars of the Earth many years ago, 30 years ago now. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> and, that's, and that's amazing. And I, I was very interested to read your um, introduction in the, the edition I've got, because it wasn't a sort of easy... Um, development to that book it came and went but now I think it's in the BBC um, top 100 books that British readers love which yes. is a marvelous thing do, how do you feel about it now looking back all that time well I'm I'm enormously proud of it um, it was quite difficult I hadn't written anything that long before and um, I wanted to show how and why the cathedrals were built. Uh, and the how part is particularly interesting to me, but of course in a novel, those kind of technical details, you've got to handle very carefully because you, you don't want to give people a lecture, it's a story. Um, but I, I, I seem to have succeeded in blending the sort of historical information into the drama of building a cathedral and it's i mean the, the uh, and people are still buying and reading the book it's amazing 31 years now since it was published and its success has been amazing and we've now arrived at a point where you are um just published the, the 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 prequel as we call them nowadays uh to the pillars of the earth a book called the evening and the morning and you've sailed off into the land of the Vikings and the Saxons, um, which I sort of feel you rather enjoy. There's a lot of goings on between the Vikings and the Saxons, battles and conflicts, and it's a, it's a fantastic read. I did have a, a sort of thought about it as I was going through. I wondered whether in that book, one of your characters, Edgar, is building a boat at one stage. And I know you did background research on the boat and he builds a bridge. And I think in World Without End, the, the second part of the Pillars of the Earth, you've got somebody building a priory. I wondered how important that kind of structural, skilled building of things was to you. 
and and you'd had it so much in the one and now you're developing it that experience of looking at something being made seems to be something you you have a a care for an interest in yes uh, i there are craftsmen in most of my medieval novels and i mean it's partly because what they're doing is they are building the country you know the country isn't just the landscape it's the the human landscape that interests me and so the country that we see all around us the britain that we see all around us has been made by people mostly people made the buildings the the churches and the bridges and um really everything built that you see around you and so what we uh, and historical novels often concentrate on royalty or politicians and so on and they can be important and dramatic but the people who made the country are actually those those um, people with hammer and chisel, or um, or, or 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 a bucket and and um, and some sand and lime making mortar. They are they built the the great charm. One of the great charms of living in this country is that you're surrounded by medieval buildings. You see them all the time, and you can and for me seeing a building is is seeing somebody's way of life you know you look at look at um, a medieval there there aren't, aren't many medieval houses left to look at but there are a few you look at them and you imagine how people lived in them and uh so uh so so the people who actually built these things the other thing is by comparison the way we work today is so easy isn't it with power tools and and you know the stresses and strains in a big building are worked out mathematically and um it it my sense of what life was like in the middle ages or even earlier in the dark ages my sense of what life was like has to do with how difficult it was to do simple things without any electricity and so on I mean, one of the nice things about this hand axe that we were talking about earlier is you, we know that steel, they didn't have, steel was kind of a new thing in the Middle Ages. It was expensive. They didn't have much of it. It was very difficult to get a good sharp edge on their tools. And you and I can go to do it all and buy a perfectly balanced hammer for, I don't know, eight pounds or something. And... Uh, uh, that is one of the striking differences about differences between now and then. The other thing I like about those passages, I mean, you uh, probably remember, you know, in Time Team, we would do a program and the part of every program was Phil usually making something like a Roman floor or a wall or a boat that just about floated and he had three days to do it. I always felt, my, my father was an engineer, and ah. I always felt a sort of degree of getting my feet on the ground when I saw those processes in the same way that your building of the cathedral or your characters constructing the life they live in and having difficulties. And you seem to have a lot of experiences where the quarry won't let your guys have the stone. There always seems to be some rich guy preventing your hero getting at his stone and, and, and it happens. 
And I think that that is, I find that interesting and sort of comforting because my experience with historians is that, you know, you get five historians in a room, they all disagree, uh, you know, and, and, they're, and I, they're, I have to say they're quite bitchy with each other. Uh, the thing I like about the solidity of things is you can't argue with an artifact. Um, yes. Well, you know, one of the one of the storylines in the evening in the morning has to do with forging coins. Yes. Now you can imagine this was an interesting thing to research. Yeah. Um, there were forged for we know that there were forged coins. The, the, the only coin uh, in existence in England at the time in the in the Middle Ages and the earlier was a silver penny, and we know that some were forged because we have you know some of the forgeries have survived along with the real coins so we know it was done but i've i've got some dramatic scenes involving this business of forgery and it was very difficult to find out how it was done until i came across a chap who you might have come across called dave greenhouge who's a who's an expert in medieval old coinage and uh, I actually ran into him at Sutton Hoo, where he had a little stall, and he was teaching children about this Anglo-Saxon stuff. And he was he was making fake pennies. He was forging Anglo-Saxon pennies. And so, the great thing about it, and then later I I um I visited him at his home, where he's got a, a proper forge and everything. And the great thing is, you see, I could watch every move he made because he took a, a, a lump of metal and he turned it into a silver penny. And so how the metal was heated, the vessels that it's held, what do you put molten silver into that it won't burn or dissolve? All that kind of thing you see. Just a couple of hours with Dave watching him do this, and I had all the details. And you can't quarrel with him because he uses no electricity. You know, there's nothing. Everything he does, he does in the medieval way. So, so really, a historian can't really tell me it wasn't done like that now because I've seen it. <laughs> and of course, I, it was interesting. You mentioned watch it a couple of times in um, the evening and the morning, and we did some work near watch it, and there was a mint at watch it. And there was a famous moneyer, these guys who produced these coins. But the thing it made me realize when I was reading your book was the sheer nervousness of the consequences as a forger, if you were found out, your loss of a hand or eyes or worse. So it was the king's money you were forging. And yeah. I thought that was quite a powerful uh, yeah. moment in the book. Oh yes, and and that's very that's very realistic. The 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 penalties for debasing the king's coinage were very so they were worse than death. They were very severe, uh, and um, uh, uh, that actually seems to have been quite successful because although there were forged coins, the value of the silver penny was very stable for a long time and. Uh, towards the end of the Dark Ages, so so threatening to you know put these guys' eyes out and chop their hands off and so on obviously worked. <laughs> I'm um I'm going to ask you something about artifacts. I'm always interested, the historian, the researcher like yourself, 
and the relationship with objects. We've talked with Philippa Gregory about finding things from a chapel and things like that. And I remember you referring in one of your books to somebody from the Fitzwilliam giving you a handful of Edward III coins. And I wonder as a writer, as a researcher, historian, your relationship with the physical objects. Have there been through your book certain objects which have become literally a sort of touchstone for inspiration or the physicality of them has made their way into your books? Well, if you can get them, yes. And um, the thing about holding medieval coins was you would never imagine how flimsy they are just from reading about them. And, and I was absolutely astonished to hold these medieval coins and realize that they weighed next to nothing. Of course, if I'd done the arithmetic, I would, I would realize that, that it was, it was uh, one 240th of a pound. Um, <laughs> but um, so somehow that doesn't have the impact on you of holding some of these coins in your hands. And yes, if you get the chance, I mean, it's quite difficult. There's not much left over from the Dark Ages. Um, uh, there, are, there aren't many helmets. I mean, helmets were a big thing. Um, but uh, um, what we mainly get from, from these digs is, is weapons, coins. We get coins and we get weapons and jewelry and so on. What's missing, what I would have liked to get my hands on, was the kind of thing they used for cooking yeah. or washing, yeah. that kind of thing. But there doesn't seem to be anything like that. Uh, at least I haven't come across it, not that I could get hold of. And if the artifact might inspire you, you know, archaeologically, we, cannot, we, we often seem to end up finding a lot of cooking pots, which aren't terribly inspiring, but, you know, it's, it's the stuff of everyday life. But if you equally had the opportunity to look at sites in your research, because I think you went to Norway to research the boats, you went around, were there any places you went to, and then this is a leading question I'm going to ask you later, if you went to certain places, were there any places where the resonance of the past struck you? Uh, like you walking on Maiden Castle or Salisbury Cathedral or these sites. Uh, have there been some sites that have said, um, you know, this is where history happened? And as a writer, you've sort of sensed some resonance from that. Um. Yes, there's a, there's a little Saxon church in Bradford-on-Avon. Oh, yeah. Uh, you probably know it. Yeah. Um, and the first thing I did when I embarked on the evening and the morning was a little tour of, of Anglo-Saxon churches that are still standing in England. And Bradford-on-Avon was one of the first. And um, uh, it's tiny. It's tiny. You know, the inside of this church is much smaller than this library that I'm sitting in at home now. Um, and yet, the central part is quite high. So you're, it's like being at the bottom of a well. And, the, there's, there are, and there are two parts. There's a nave and a chancel, and the altar is, in, of course, in the chancel. But then there, 
that you go through an arch to get to the chancel. So the, the congregation's view of what the priests are doing around the altar is quite restricted. And then the walls are very thick and the windows small, an indication of uh, early and unsophisticated building techniques. As we know, eventually Masons learned that you, there were better ways to make the building stand up than have a, a wall two yards thick and, and you could have quite big windows and so on. But this, there, was a, there was a claustrophobia about that little church in Bradford-on-Avon that was quite spooky. And um, I certainly felt that. Uh, and uh, if I, you know, anybody wants to get the feel of Anglo-Saxon England, I would say Bradford-on-Avon is certainly one of the places you should go to. No, not that the town is Anglo-Saxon, you know, the town is a normal town, but that little church is true. But the, the, um, the Viking ships in the Ship Museum in Oslo were also quite inspiring. They're very graceful, but they're also menacing. Uh, and their grace, their speed has to do with their grace. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of beautiful and horrible at the same time. And um, the opening scene of the evening and the morning is obviously inspired by my looking, standing in the ship museum in Oslo and looking at these ships. They're full-size ships. These are the kind of ships that did cross the North Sea and they're not reproductions. They're actually, um, uh, they've been dug up out of the mud and a bit of repair work, but mostly original wood that somehow survived. And there they are. And so, and of course, that's when I imagine somebody standing on a beach and looking out to sea and seeing hell coming to town in the form of 15 or 20 of these Viking ships. Interestingly, we're working with an archaeologist at the moment called Dr. Kat Jarman, who's going to be an advisor to the Ship Museum in Oslo. Um, and she's got all sorts of interesting ideas about potential sites. I find it fascinating that you have that sense of an ordinary person's eye view of the history of the past or being in the past, because I, often your characters who I often end up identifying with, I mean, you have some great baddies. I mean, <laughs> Dreng in the, I mean, who would pay Dreng in the film version of the evening and the morning? I mean, he's a, a nasty bit of work. And what's the name, Dreng? Um, but I think that sense that, you know, history happens to ordinary people and often it's the guys on the beach seeing these people come. The kings and the queens sort of carry on, but it's the ordinary people. Often I find with Viking and Saxon um, films and television documentaries, is there's a sort of fascination about battles and fights. And, and I know there's a, there's a certain amount of, of, of knives entering gullets and various other things that, that goes on in your books. Um, but I wondered how you, do you take an interest in the battle side of it, if you like? I mean, we know where some of these battles took place. Um, Ethenburg, for instance, and Brunaber, we think. But where do the battles come in your research and, and ideas for the book? 
Well, I'm interested because my interest in history began with military history. Oh. I started out as a novelist writing spy stories, mm. and I decided that, that a spy story would be much more uh, much more um, interesting, much more thrilling if the spy was doing something that had to do with a real battle or a real war or revolution. And I started to read mil military history looking for moments in war when the action of a spy in finding something out or killing somebody, the action of a spy or a secret agent could have changed the course of history. Either did change the course of history or might have if the spy had been successful. And um, that's so how I got interested in military history. And now with with the medieval stories, there's generally one big battle uh, in, um, in the pillars of the earth. It's the Battle of Lincoln, 1141. Where Stephen gets defeated. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. And um, uh, the good thing, of course, about Lincoln is that the cathedral and the castle are still there in the rather confrontational positions in which they were built in the Middle Ages. And um, so, uh, and then of course, there's the, the, the marvelous fact, you know, I, I constantly am telling people that in Middle Ages, cathedrals weren't just used for, for worship. Yeah. And the marvelous fact that, 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 that Stephen and his army and all their horses spent the night in Lincoln Cathedral. I mean, that's absolutely marvellous. Proves my point, as it were. Um, but but um, yes, I, I like those battles. I do think a little of it goes a long way. And I'm pretty sure that my readers don't want to read about a lot of battles. But one in a historical novel um, is terrific, I think. Um, it's something about a, a battle that's sort of bottom line, isn't it? You know, how do you kill people? This is... You know, this is very basic. Um, I was, my, his, my historical consultants surprised me in um, the evening and the morning because in the first draft, I had people, people had axes and swords and knives and hammers. And um, the historians said to me, you know, only the very noble and very wealthy would have had those sophisticated weapons. The weapon of war in the, in the dark ages was the spear. And most of the people who went into battle would have nothing, would just have a spear, which is kind of interesting. If, but if you think about it, it's the only way to kill somebody without getting close until gunpowder is invented isn't it? So the spear, you know, you could, with a bit of luck, you could, you could disable the other guy before he gets close enough to kill you. So that made a lot of sense. That's the, but that's the kind of thing you see, because it's battle, a fight, it's very basic. And the question of how, what, what you've got that could kill somebody, is really tells you the level of technology that the society is at. And the frightening thing is, um, Kat uh, and a, a good friend of ours, Martin Biddle, one of the great and good of English archaeology, he excavated Repton. And the burial site at Repton is uh, somehow the picture of what we all imagine 
uh, a Viking burial site looks like. It's a car crash of bodies, holes in the heads, bits hacked off. It, it's, and you see it there. It's that rarity to have evidence like that. And, and the work that Martin um, did there was, was really, fa this is the Viking overwintering army. Right. Um, going back to your interest in battles, are there any battles in, in passing which have caught your attention and thought, I'd like to know more about that from Viking Anglo-Saxon periods or other periods you've been interested in? Have you thought, oh, it would be fantastic if we could find evidence of that battle? Um, well, I must say the battle that of, of all has fascinated me the most and I've spent the most time studying uh, is, of course, very, very much studied and a lot of is known about it. The Battle of the Somme. Right. Beginning yeah. on the 1st of July, 1916. Yeah. And um, I went into this, as you might imagine, knowing where I stand politically and so on, quite ready to believe that the British soldiers had been lions led by donkeys, which is the myth. And I ended up not thinking that at all about the Battle of the Somme uh, and ended up thinking that it was a, a, a very determined attempt to solve the problem of how you can win a trench war. They didn't, they weren't callous the, the generals weren't callous about this and they weren't stupid. They had a plan that might have worked. Nobody knew because nobody had been in this situation before of trench warfare. And, uh, but the British plan, very, the allied plan, I should say, was to, was to flatten the German positions with artillery before the advance. And it, it didn't work, but nobody knew that it wouldn't work. And the, of course, army officers send men to their deaths. They always do that. They have to do that. I'm afraid it's their job. You can't criticize the, uh, the officers of the British Army in 1916 for sending men across no man's land. That's what they had to do. That's what it's about. So, so on my own view of the Battle of the Somme, my, the, so the view that I'd sort of picked up without studying it was completely turned on its head. Uh, I would like to know more whether there were serious discussions about cancelling it. Yeah. Because you see, the barrage, which was supposed to flatten the German positions, went on for a week. Yeah. They, they, they fired a million shells. That, there'd never been a, an artillery barrage a tenth as big yeah. uh, before this, this occasion. And it, was, and it was difficult to know how effective it had been because it rained all week. Nice. The whole of that week... It poured with rain last week in June, typical, more typical of British weather than French, poured with rain. So aerial reconnaissance told them almost nothing. Um, First World War planes didn't fly very well in the rain and their First World War cameras didn't work very well in the rain and cloud. All they had was intelligence from interrogating prisoners. Uh, but that had told them they knew that it hadn't worked the way they'd hoped. They didn't know how bad things were. 
And there's an argument in my book, Fall of Giants, between two people on the night before the advance, and they're talking about whether it should be cancelled or not. And um, I'd like to know whether there were any such discussions in Downing Street uh, or, or in uh, the War Office in London or at the, at the Allied High Command, whether there were serious discussions about calling it off, because if they had, they would have, well, it was, it, what, it, I, if I remember rightly, it was 50,000 German lives, uh, uh, British, English lives, British lives, 50,000 British, those people might have, those people might have been saved if they'd called it off. So that's, that's something that we may one day find out. It is another kind of archaeology, I think, as well. We were recently talking to Susie Lipscomb, the historian, a Tudor historian, and she was talking about the process of digging back into records that we know quite well, Henry VIII's trial of Anne Boleyn. And the original records had been calendared by the people at the time, that they'd been ordered in terms of when they happened and, and not necessarily the subjects. And, and in the way she talked about it, that that process that you refer to of, you know, how would we find that out has always struck me as a kind of uh, literary documentary excavation, uh, which can produce things as exciting as finds, um, you know, in its way, if you find that right document that tells you. Um, I've got a, a question that I'd like to ask you going back to the evening and the morning. Um, there seems to be, uh, this is um, spot where it is game for all readers of Ken Follett novels to play. I find myself seeing a reference, they take the road to Glastonbury and I think, oh good, now, now I know it's up Glastonbury and come back a bit and then it's near to here. And that sort of little development of your books around that area, was there a village or town or a mixture of villages and towns that you sort of felt like a bit like home that could have been the Kingsbridge, the, 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 the Shire that you refer to? I must say, I've never quite come across. Um, it would be wonderful, wouldn't it? The place would probably, cathedral towns today are very charming and a little bit out of date usually. Not all of them, of course, but many. Um, uh, and it would be really interesting to look at a place and say, yes, this might be Kingsbridge, but I haven't ever come across. Of course, there are several places called Kingsbridge. Yeah. There are three or four in the United Kingdom. Uh, there's a place called Kingsbridge, Texas. And to be honest, if I had known that Kingsbridge was going to feature in at least four of my novels rather than just in the Pillars of the Earth, I would have given it a more distinctive name. <laughs> it probably took me about five seconds to think of Kingsbridge. <laughs> but um, no, that, but you know, that's, that's a thought. And next time, if, if ever I get to do the kind of um, tour that I love to do of, of looking at um, old churches and old uh, buildings, uh, country houses and so on, if I, ever I get to do that again, if this wretched virus goes away, then I must keep an eye open for somewhere that might be uh, Kingsbridge today. There'll be lots of candidates, won't there? Yes. <laughs> I think it's always interesting as well when we've done a lot of work over the last four years in Dunster in Somerset, which has got its castle and its streets and things like that. And it's got 
lots of nice buildings that, that look like they've been slightly sort of um, improved historically a little bit, but, but the actual um, what's underneath is absolutely amazing. We started doing dendro dating of the timbers in the roofs and houses that have been labeled 16th, 17th century. We were finding dates of 1270. So I think sometimes under, you know, your point about English villages and towns and cathedrals, sometimes underneath the surface of these places that look relatively, well, 16th, 17th century, there is a medieval core. And we spent four years at Dunster looking for roots and paperwork and documents. And there it was. And I think it would be a rather lovely idea at some point to sort of settle on somewhere that began to resonate for you on, you know, the possible source, because you keep going back to it. I mean, it's mildly obsessive, I think. You keep returning to Kingsbridge and you want to be there for some reason. And I sort of feel there's some, you'll walk one day into a place and you go, this is it. This is the place I've thought of. Um, and that makes it interesting archaeologically to see if we could find below the surface some of those things that, that you bring yeah. in. I always thought that when you got to, it's interesting, World Without End, which is from the common prayer, isn't it? I, yes. I wondered if, and you know, this might be something you can't tell us, but I kind of would like you to have a go at the Reformation, which you may have already done, I don't know. But it struck me, all these people you're talking about, um, I've got a, a, a book about Morbath on the edge of the moor, the Chronicles of Morbath, and the effect on English villages of the dissolution of the monasteries, the Reformation, the removal of the Catholic rites uh, to an ordinary village in Britain was extraordinary. And, and it's all those people that when I think of the people you normally go to, that experience was extraordinary. And I felt like, you know, I'd love to have it, the pillars of the earth, world without end, and then, um, you know, amen with the closing of the churches. <laughs> Is that an area you've ever got interested in? Well, I, 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 um, I wrote the column, A Column of Fire, which was my last book, is about the, the wars of religion. Yeah. Uh, and it takes place partly in Kingsbridge. So there's a certain amount of that stuff. Um, and the hero, is, the hero is a Protestant boy in love with a Catholic girl. Right. Um, uh, and of course, that, that happens a lot in fiction, doesn't it? And, um, but that's because that's the most dramatic uh, conflict that's caused by these religious divisions. The, the, um, the title of World Without End came about because... While I was writing the book, I went to York to look at, I said earlier that you don't see very many medieval houses and there are three medieval houses in York. And I went there for, for a, a few days to look at them all. Barbara came with me and on the Saturday night, we went to Evensong in the cathedral. Yeah. If, when, if, if ever Americans say to me, what should I see when I come to England? I say you should go to one of the great cathedrals for the service of Evensong on a Saturday night. Make sure that the choir will be singing. It is a, it's an unforgettable experience. So anyway, so, so Barbara and I do it whenever we get a chance. And we're sitting in, in York Minster, not cathedral, York Minster. 
uh, on Saturday night, uh, listening to the music. And as you know, the, the Psalms often end as it was, is now, and ever will be, world without end, amen. And I turned to Barbara and I said, what do you think of world without end as the title of the book? And she, she said, I like it. <laughs> so that's where we got the title. Uh, and I, I think it would probably be a bit um, unfair to ask you, but what is your favorite cathedral currently? Because you've been to a lot of them. And I, I think somewhere you basically said you're not a particularly spiritual person, but that description of you at evening, even song, it clearly means so. Is there one that you particularly have a love for and a care for? I, I, I like Salisbury very much. Um, of course, it's, it's not really a typical cathedral because it was built quite quickly. And in consequence, it's uniform in style. That early English style with, with the lancet windows, pretty uniform, whereas most English cathedrals, Canterbury, for example, is a hodgepodge of several different architectural styles, and it's actually part of the charm of our cathedrals. But when push comes to shove, one that is exactly as it was meant to be is rather precious, and so I am very fond of Salisbury. Yeah. And... Um... I've got a few sort of final questions, really. Other historical periods you feel you're moving towards, are you particularly attracted by a particular uh, piece of research you're doing at the moment? Can, can, can you tell us where you might be heading off in, at some point in the future if it's not confidential? Well, I won't, I won't say, the, I won't talk, if you don't mind, about the book I'm working on at the moment. No. Um, but I could tell you a couple of things that have caught my eye recently. Um, I'm reading a book called um, Vienna 1814. Oh. Uh, and the, the meeting in Vienna where they, they agreed the Congress of Vienna was, first of all, it was the, it was the biggest party of the 19th century by a long shot. It went on for months and practically bankrupted the Austrian emperor. Um, and there was no world war. The Napoleonic Wars had been pan-European wars involving uh, all of Europe. And there was, wasn't another war like that for a hundred years. And so not only did those people have a great time, but they did a darn good job. And, and that's all I can tell you. I, I'm reading this book. It's quite fascinating. And I'm thinking, can I make a story out of this? And the other, and the, the other, the other person I'm beginning to think about is Charlemagne. Uh -huh. Now, I don't know much about Charlemagne, but I've got the vague idea that he was a very important person in European history. Yeah. Um, and um, you'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll say, no, no news there, Ken, you'll say. <laughs> but I've, so, anyway, but that's how it works. You know, something like that just strikes me as intriguing and, um, and we'll see. And I don't think wi widely known about, I think Charlemagne on Europe is a very known king you know, because of his role in Christianity and in one sense, keeping back the waves of uh, uh, slightly less Christian characters from the East 
um, he's regarded rather wonderfully for, and also keeping Latin knowledge going. I think he had a big role in bringing particularly Irish, British monks to his court. I've got a feeling, and I might be wrong about this, but Alcuin had a connection with Charlemagne. And, and, and he did a tremendous job of bringing together that sort of Celtic Christianity and bringing it under, under his wing, which was, was good. So wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't stop there. <laughs> so did I hear you right? Monks from England went to Charlemagne's court. Yes, and I'm really on the edge of my knowledge here. So for God's that's sake, all right. That's all right. Researchers, but somewhere in the back of my mind, I have a memory that Charlemagne was one of those kings who had the good sense and fortune to bring towards him lots and lots of different people from all the parts of his empire, which was sort of North Britain down to Italy, and and it was massive. And I think on his staff around his court, he had some particularly brilliant uh, monks from the north of Britain, but but please check it out. I have Alcuin in my mind, but uh, well, of course, of course, of course, I'll check it out. But do you, do you see do you see the Kingsbridge story that's coming into oh, my head? A monk from Kingsbridge goes to Charlemagne's court, and I know you like your monks from Father yeah. Philip. There's always seems to be not a high level monk, but an ordinary monk who makes his way up. You might have a hero, and anyway, Alcuin might make a great hero for you. So. Uh, I, I might look up, do a bit of research and pass it on to you and see what you could say. Um, Ken, I've got a, a question we always ask people. Uh, you get time team to play with for a week. You kind of know what we did. Geophysics, Phil doing the digging, uh, Carenza and Helen doing the research, John doing the geophysics, all our guys there for you. You can take them anywhere you want. This is your fantasy time team dig, if you like. Um, and where, what site would you like us to uh, excavate for you? And we'd obviously invite you along uh, to help out. Well, I want you to come here to my house. <laughs> Listen, I live in the village of Nebworth. Yeah. The, the, uh, the big house, I, my nearest neighbour is Nebworth House, the big house, right. which has been there for we we think for a good thousand years it's on top of a hill so it was probably a fortified it's probably a fortified stockade in anglo-saxon times and my house and there's a church of course in the park yeah. and my house is the rectory for the church yeah. the church is um parts of the church go back to the 11th century mm -hmm. uh, the priest must have lived somewhere he probably lived here it's a it's a short walk uh, to the church, uh, it, it, like two hundred yards, something like that. And um, so this might have this has probably been a priest's house for a thousand years. Um, of course, latterly uh, the priest, the rector of Nebworth, would often have been a younger son of the earl. Yeah. Uh, therefore, he might not have considered his spiritual duties to be at the top of his agenda. And in fact, the house grew in size over the centuries yeah. and is now quite a big house. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, he would have, the, the occupants would have been very interested, I imagine, in hunting and shooting and fishing. And um, 
had a jolly good salary for doing not very much for in the in terms of the spiritual care of their parishioners. But anyway, that's the, and so it would be just fascinating to learn a little bit more about, um, about my house and of course the big house just across the way. And you've got 11th century church, uh, earlier Saxon or Roman activity, presumably in the area. Well, I don't, I'm not sure there's any evidence for it. Nebworth is in the doomsday book. Okay. Um, and there should be an Anglo-Saxon person mentioned in the Doomsday Book, who the Lord, the Norman Lord, bought the land off sometimes. So there should be the person who owned it before the Norman Lord. Sometimes. Ah, I must, I must check that. I, last time I looked, I didn't notice that, but I'll check. Have a look if there's an Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. That is a sounds like a very good fantasy site. We will all look forward to coming and staying in your place for a bit and uh, digging some holes. One of Nothing the, I'd like better. <laughs> one of the things we've been doing, uh, Mick Aston, who, who, who was the sort of inspiration behind Time Team, Mick was very keen on test pitting. And one or two villages we've worked on, we've put numbers of test pits around the village. And we found medieval Anglo-Saxon pottery. In the case of Dunster, we found Roman pottery in Gosh. a small test pit in one of the gardens in the house. So these places can be surprisingly old. Yeah. Um, final question, Ken. Uh, can you think of a good reason why Time Team should come back again? Do you think it would be good to get it back and why? Um, well, all I can say is I enjoyed that show more than anything else on TV and watched it every week. And there's something... Of course, there were interesting people, all these, very, all these very smart, very knowledgeable people, and all of them a little bit odd. Um, I mean, mixed, mixed jumpers were just, uh, well, let, let me say no more than odd. Um, all, these, all these interesting people, but, but the, the detective story element was so completely fascinating. And, uh, you know, when somebody, somebody would pick up a piece of pottery that looked like nothing at all, just a just a, a shard, nothing at all, and then somehow we'd find out. Well, there's a lip on it, which indicates that it was this, and all of that was just. I thought it was absolutely well. And you know what? I mean, I I meet a lot of youngsters who are interested in this kind of thing. The number of youngsters who went in for archaeology because they loved Time Team. Well, you know, you know this. Um, uh, and uh, similarly, I meet um, young men who say um, it was after reading the Pillars of the Earth that I decided to become a stonemason, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say that, Ken. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, I have had great fun uh, over the years reading your books. Thank you. Um, uh, it's always a pleasure to, because I always feel the poor guy at the bottom might have all sorts of stuff dumped on his head, but ultimately uh, he's going to make it out and the baddie will get it in the neck. It's very satisfying from that point of view. Good. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. And best wishes for the evening and the morning. Uh, Thank you. Incredibly enjoyable read. And uh, we will all research Nebworth. I will go away and look at uh, Charlemagne Alcuin connections, if there are any. And hopefully one day we'll find ourselves around your place, uh, uh, seeing what we can find out. So that would be great. Thank you very much and stay well.
My pleasure. Enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Cheerio.